Welcome to the ERMI podcast. I'm Joel Applebaum, the Chief Content Officer for ERMI. And in this podcast, you'll learn about the risks and coverage concerns for battery energy storage systems. If you're seeking knowledge and motivation to be the best insurance professional you can be, then you're in the right place. And I'm stoked to have the sponsors from our energy conference here as our podcast guest today, Stacy Prescott, the underwriting officer and head of energy at the Hartford. Stacy uh, is responsible for helping to establish the business unit's primary market strategy, along with accountability for production, profitability, underwriting, and compliance. And also Ken, Ken Travers, who is the technical manager for property and product of the Hartford's risk engineering office. So welcome Stacy and Ken, and thanks for being with us today and talking about battery energy storage systems. Absolutely, you're quite welcome. Great. Great, all right, well, let's get started. I'm gonna spin this first question to you, Ken. Can you describe what a battery energy storage system is and why it's important? Sure, thanks, Joel. So a battery energy storage system is just one of three types of the general category of energy storage systems. It's more of the recent technology. It's referred to also as a BESS, and it uses a variety of different types of battery chemistries, which include flow batteries, lead acid, sodium, and lithium ion batteries. And these are all designed to meet certain types of power and duration requirements to store energy for later use. Initially used for smaller electronic products, Lithium-ion batteries have grown very popular due to their power density advantage over the other types of chemistries. And we do see them being deployed in a range of battery energy storage system applications, including both small residential systems, such as the uh, Powerwall product used in uh, homeowners, and also large systems that can store multiple megawatt hours, both at industrial and commercial facilities. Typically, these systems house a large number of batteries together on a rack, Uh, not unlike what you see in a data server rack, combined with uh, monitoring and management components. The systems themselves uh, have a pretty small footprint for the amount of energy that they store. And the reason they're really important is that it enables commercial, industrial, and uh, even consumer entities to harness energy from a variety of sources, which uh, could predominantly be renewable sources, such as wind turbines and photovoltaic panels, and also store that energy for future use. That, That future use could be at times when traditional utility grid power is at peak and very expensive, or when normal utility power is happens to be disrupted in the event of a catastrophic event, such as a hurricane or flood or something in that nature. Cool. All right. So, Stacy, help us understand, you know, the use case for BESS. You know, does it create energy for consumption by commercial or industrial entities or a facility? Fill us in there. So, actually, I want to clarify that a battery ener- energy storage system does not actually itself create or produce energy. It's a storage a storage system. And the energy is produced by other means, including different types of renewable sources. I like to think of it as it, what makes me kind of understand it a little bit better is I think of my cell phone. We have to charge our mobile phones in every night and you know basically build up the battery. And then our cell phone runs throughout the day off of the battery. So if you kind of keep that in mind, it kind of helps you understand that it is not a generation or production source, it's just a storage source. Great. And Ken, you know, where would we expect to find these BESS installations and, and, and what type of configuration 
would the uh, battery energy energy storage systems have? That's a really good question, Joel. When um, BESS first came out over a decade ago, they, you started to find them in more industrial settings and particularly utility scale type uh, operations. What we're seeing lately in the last few years is it's expanding quite a bit to commercial operations and even to uh, some extent in consumer and uh, homeowners operations. So the ability of the uh, units themselves to store and harness energy from a a variety of sources and then employ that at a later time uh, when it's in need, whether it's because of high peak demand or uh, whether it's... um, you know, trying to pick, uh, take, take advantage of lower rates. It's always there to to provide power to whatever the demand that, that we're looking to use it in. So we've been seeing these increasingly at commercial occupancies, including retail, like the large box stores, warehouse and distribution centers, and they have, now they found their way into data centers and are starting to replace different types of uh, UPS type systems as well as emergency generation uh, type power units as well. Sure. You got to explain what UPS systems are, because not all our listeners know what that would be. Sure. Apologize for the acronym. Yeah, UPS uh, stands for un- Uninterrupted Power Source, and typically they're housed in uh, with batteries inside of them, and they're used in data centers in particular to make sure that if there is a power outage, we have continuous power to servers and data centers and th- uh, data operations and things like that. They're finding their way into uh, these types of applications just due to you know, the power efficiency uh, provided, cost, access to, you know, hydrocarbon fuels that are required for more emergency generation of power. Awesome. So what unique hazards and concerns should be considered with a battery energy storage system? Can an automatic fire sprinkler protection provide adequate control for the, you know, a fire involving, you know, a, a best system? Help me understand it. Well, let's start with the hazards first. Battery energy storage systems are a bit unique. They depend upon, for the most part today, lithium-ion batteries, and many folks may be familiar with those. They're used in EV car batteries. They're used in a wide variety of electronic consumer products, laptops. Stacy was mentioning about the cell phones. So the hazard potential with the BESS includes um, electrical-related failures within the system, uh, combustible gas release from the battery electrolyte if it overheats, Uh, even potentially explosion and others generally associated with battery charging type systems. When they're used in a BESS, the added hazards of what we call thermal runaway, which is a phenomenon where the battery itself releases flammable electrolyte gas and can expand, cause the cell itself to rupture and and, uh, produce heat that exposes the adjacent or joining batteries and then eventually it can produce this thermal runaway type of a situation. So the batteries themselves, the lithium ion batteries, they're very sus- suspect to different types of um, damage and uh, cause of origin of these failures. But the causal event usually boils down to mechanical abuse of damage, uh, manufacturing defects, uh, short circuits, and also excessive battery overcharging. So that's a unique hazard with lithium ion batteries. And when we combine them into a product array, uh, within a battery energy storage system, which is essentially a container, if you will, um, then we, we can it can lead to pretty significant fire and explosion events. As far as automatic sprinkler protection, lithium-ion batteries, when they burn and when they explode, there's a significant amount of heat released, and the batteries continue to release off-gassing, which contributes to the fire itself. 
and uh, copious amounts of water are required to try to even uh, control them, let alone extinguish them. Um, so sprinklers uh, are definitely the way to go as long as they have an adequate and strong water supply um, because all the other types of fire protection extinguishing systems such as gaseous systems just don't provide the cooling that's necessary. And a lot of that has to do also with the inability to get the extinguishing agent into the compact nature of the batteries. They tend to be shielded. So it is. It can be effective, but typically we look at it more from a control standpoint than we do from an extinguishing standpoint due to those difficulties. I'm guessing this could be kind of dangerous if you combine it with the solar, right? <laughs> can, <laughs> what standards or guidance are available to apply to you know the the BESS system to assure adequate prevention or loss associated with the the batteries? Well, for a while, we just had uh, guidance that came from certain manufacturers, um, but the industry itself rallied around and developed uh, NFPA standard 855 um, back in 2020. Uh, that's when the first edition was released, and that applies to the design and construction, operation, maintenance, installation of uh, battery energy storage systems. And that standard really followed the research and fire testing that was conducted prior to that by a group of entities, which includes the NFPA's Property Insurance Research Group, or PERG, of which the Hartford is proud to be a sponsoring member of that. And due to the significant fire hazard that's associated with the use of lithium-ion batteries, 855, the standard, does stipulate requirements for a variety of protection schemas, including exhaust ventilation, specific smoke and fire detection with attention to those off-gases that I talked about earlier. The idea is to try to identify an initiating event very early in the process so that uh, corrective action can be taken. Uh, so we do have a standard now. It's been out for a couple of years, and the Hartford you know, has adopted and, and utilizes that with our clients. Awesome. Yeah, Stacy, will you help me kind of understand the the view of the emerging market for the battery energy storage systems, and and what does the future hold for this technology? So that's an absolutely wonderful question. I like to talk about it because it's this technology is just really expanding very quickly. The battery power markets in the U.S. are really undergoing a significant change that are resulting in installations of larger-scale battery storages as well as small residential-type programs and um, installations. And it's expected that we will have a tenfold increase in growth since 2019. Developers and power plant owners all plan to significantly increase the utility-scale battery storage capacity over the next several years. And the goal is a pretty large goal to, to reach 30 gigawatts by 2025. I'd also like to comment that there are a couple of states where we really have some, some, some pretty significant ramp up with solar and wind. And that's California, the states of California and Texas. And we're going to see more than 75% of our new battery storage capacity planned for those states. All in all, if all this it happens as just projected, um, we could have the share of the U.S. battery storage that's collated, co-located with generation to increase about 60% in the next few years. Wow. Remarkable uh, growth, right? <laughs> that's pretty phenomenal, yes. <laughs> Stacy, will battery energy storage systems technology eventually crowd out more of the traditional 
emergency power generator installations, per perhaps those fossil fuel based. <laughs> well, so I wouldn't necessarily use the term crowd out. I think what's going on is it, it's ramping up very quickly to support the growth that we're having with wind and solar. I feel this is kind of temporary because really the only thing that's holding back further expansion very quickly of wind and solar is a permitting issue. We have so many projects, you know, on tap in the US right now that we're having a hard time getting the permitting done for the installation to continue. So I feel like that once we get past that little bit of a backlog, and with our continued tax incentives for wind and solar, it's fully, I fully expect to continue to see this area really, really ramp up in the next, in the very short term, next two to three to five years. Awesome. I know at, at ERMI.com, we just opened uh, registration for our virtual energy risk and insurance conference. Um, I would definitely see renewable energy as a, a wave growing in the future and I've always appreciated your guys' support and sponsorship of our, our conferences so we can educate people on these risks. And it seems to me as this grows, there's potentially a lack of coverage or understanding of getting the proper coverage. Is, it, is that true? And, and can you comment just a little bit on that for us? Yeah, I would love to. And I was also going to add that, you know, when I talk about ramping up, the acceleration that we're seeing in terms of submission activity, I would tell you as an energy unit, that does not just do renewable energy, uh, we service the whole energy industry. I would say incoming today, 50% of the submissions we see hitting the underwriter's desk are for renewable energy projects. So these projects are coming in for underwriting consideration. And you know, without the without having a kin to be able to help us through these things, and without having a staff of good technical risk engineers. Underwriting carriers would have a problem kind of keeping up with the flow that we're seeing from this ramp up with on the renewable side of the industry. Right. I mean, it sounds like Ken's really important because maybe even the markets don't want it without the proper controls, which which makes me want to ask Ken, what are the minimum controls and protection strategies that should be expected for these battery and energy storage installations? Thanks, Joe. Yeah. We are seeing an awful lot of development here, and um, with NFPA 855 that finally was published, that's kind of become uh, somewhat of the gold standard for looking for not only protection and, and other types of um, strategies, but also for siting requirements. We, we do have at the Hartford some pretty specific siting requirements for these units. These units are typically on the outside of a structure in some form of a container, much like maybe a trailer or maybe a group of those uh, trailers and containers. And so we're cognizant of looking at spacing requirements between these uh, types of units and, you know, existing buildings, especially where we have some combustibility involved or we have open, you know, windows or openings on the side of the wall that might be potentially exposed. Our concern, of course, is something happening within one of the BESS containers and then expanding to either the structure or structures and or the other, you know, containers. In many cases, depending on the megawatt capacity requirements, you might find five, six, 10 BESS units, you know, uh, outside in a yard area um, as well. So, you know, NFPA 855 does a really good job of uh, requiring certain types of construction and protection and maintenance. I mentioned earlier about uh, container exhaust ventilation. We require that to limit the concentration of flammable gases that do 
off gas when uh, these batteries start to fail. Also gas detection inside the uh, containers themselves. Sprinkler protection where it can be supported with an adequate water supply, assuming that that exists you know, at the site, and in other terms of other forms of maybe fire protection for small lithium-ion battery installations. So there is guidance finally in, in the market, and the industry is starting to kind of coalesce around that. One, one last thing that we look at, depending or look for, depending on the megawatt capacity of the best, uh, is explosion prevention systems, because these units with lithium-ion batteries do have a potential for having an explosion, explosive atmosphere, and then, of course, a, a failure in that regards. Some of the early uh, utility-grade uh, BESS units, there was a couple of fires where, you know, explosions did occur and actually injure first responders. Yeah, to me, I mean, this sounds like a growing exposure that I think risk managers, you know, even homeowners or people who are utilizing this technology really understand, right? Because of incidents like you just mentioned, Ken, I think there's, you know, concern on the underwriting side of the market. So you have to go to people who really, A, understand the risk, can provide the proper coverage. And I think in order to do that, right, and I'm going to direct this question to you, Stacy. I think it's really critical that technical risk engineering knowledge is shared with the underwriters, right? so that they understand uh, what risks they actually have. And furthermore, it's shared with, you know, the risk manager or who's ever, you know, t- taking the risk, how to minimize it. Like that's that's really the critical thing because this is, this is new, it's growing, it's changing, but we need to understand it, provide the proper coverage and proper risk techniques. So how do you, how do you feel about that? How critical is this connection that I, I mentioned between technical risk engineering and underwriting efforts? Oh, it's absolutely a requirement. I mean, it's the most critical thing that we can do to make sure we understand the specifics of a project. Like Ken mentioned and that you mentioned, these, these projects and funding for projects are emerging so quickly. Usually we start with a site analysis, but I just had one that came through the door the other day that was in the Brooklyn area of New York in a 70,000 square foot building and 17 floors of batteries. And so when you think about kind of that could be scary in the event that you did have an explosion or a fire breakout because you're in a very dense neighborhood, very narrow streets, which would be, you know, could be an impediment for fire suppression for the fire trucks to get in. So These are the types of things we ask our risk engineers like Ken to kind of look for for us to, you know, it's not always the obvious thing that you see on the paper submission that comes in. So we have to work hand in hand with our risk engineers. And many, many times we actually require them to go out to the site before we quote to make sure that we know all of the really relevant particulars that we need to understand from an underwriting perspective. It's just the period of time where we are with this just this technology evolving so fast and no one particular project is the same. And so it just requires a a deeper degree of coordination between underwriting and risk engineering, probably than a lot of other classes of businesses that we see. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think we're finding new, more efficient ways to produce and manage the energy we need and uh you know whether you're a renewable energy you know company harvesting wind and solar power or 
you know, a hydroelectric plant. I mean, I think you really need to understand the risks and, uh, you know, appreciate organizations like yours that are providing pretty comprehensive solutions that are helping these newer energy technologies thrive. So appreciate you guys being here with us today and your sponsorship of the ERMI Energy and Risk Insurance Conference. Thanks. Can I add real quick? Too, oh, if, please if, do. If we have people that want any more information on the topic, as oh, well great. as our safety information across all of the industries that we support from the Hartford Insurance Company, please log log in at www.thehartford.com forward slash risk engineering. And you can ha see all of the risk engineering services that are available to our customers. And if you're interested in viewing all of our different coverages, the industries that we serve and the, and the services that we offer, also www.thehartford.com forward slash specialization. And thank you again, Joel. We really enjoyed being asked to, to share our knowledge with you today. Awesome. Well, I hope to see you August 1st through the 3rd at the Ermi Energy Risk and Insurance Conference. It's a virtual event and appreciate your sponsorship. And this is great information for people who have this type of risk exposure. So thanks for doing this for us. Absolutely. Thank you thanks. very much, Joel.